the Squall was written and is narrated by Isabel Cook. Do enjoy. The Squall Suspended blue on endless sky Like snow-white clouds that float effortlessly by With outstretched arms you feel you can reach Lying motionless on an endless flat beach Storms brewing feel the world turn grey Dramatic darkness at the dawn of the day It closes in and compresses the air A dark silent reflects moods as the wind begins to stir Wind stirs the waves in a cauldron of spray The sun sinks behind a cloud but wish it could stay From a concrete sky rain lashes the harbour wall Where waves rise, crash, swell and fall A deep-throated thunder that echoes across the abyss A breathtaking theatrical display, the beachcombers at risk The small boats toss, they rise and fall When suddenly a lonely haunting seagull call Flash of light as lightning streaks the sky Electrically charged you feel the power pass you by Chinks of light break through the dark and steely grey Sending eerie light across the once sheltered bay A hint of painted blue gradually spills into brightening day Pushing the heavy, oppressive dark clouds away The watered blue washes the panoramic view A calm's returned, the storm's abated and has passed through The Gathering by Helen O'Mahony and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. They opened invitation on the table beside my half-full coffee cup. It's a bright star on my social horizon. Already I picture how it will be. Once again our little clan coming together as in times before. Birthdays and baptisms, weddings and farewells. Now a double birthday, 60 both. A joyful thing, a festive affair. We will meet each other gladly, with hugs and handshakes, a warm embrace, a soft hand on the shoulder. Everyone in their finest, glamour and colour and cool, bright faces, smiling eyes, glasses of bubbles, plates of hors d'oeuvres, a feeling of glee in the air. Music and dancing, the chatter in groups, the telling of stories and memories shared. The heart-to-heart talks in a corner that's quiet, the maudlin songs of an age that's long past, the times that we've shared from childhood to now, and the family ties that draw us all near. We see the resemblance of features and faces with a sense of belonging that no one can steal. Late in the evening, the talk of times past, with such sad little smiles which belie the wounds and the scars of all that's gone by. Absent faces are sadly missed. We speak of how we lost them, but for now we carry on, keeping the memories of love that once shone. Living for those as much as we can, our kinship grows stronger time after time. I finish my coffee. Its warmth feeds my soul. Fading in the Sand, written by Sally Runham, narrated by Colette Parker and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Wait for the police, Adam. We'll head to the beach. Cherry grabbed the car keys, Susie followed and the Range Rover zoomed off. Their mum had been gone over an hour. 
and the circle to search several square miles. Diagnosed with early dementia, Barbara remained active. She could easily be three miles away in any direction. Gammon, Barbara's living carer, had inadvertently left the door unlocked whilst on the phone to her family in Thailand. No restraint was permitted, but special dispensation to bar exits was given if the carer needed to for short periods. News from Thailand had shocked Gammon and precious moments passed before she heard the sensor mat alarm indicating Barbara's exit from the manor house. Hoping to find her charge in the landscape grounds, she breathlessly pursued but quickly realised she would never close the net alone and phoned Barbara's elder daughter. Cherry alerted the police, suggesting where Barbara could be. A panda car would be dispatched, but not as an emergency. Cherry had contacted her sister, Susie, who with her husband, Adam, worked from home, barely an hour's drive away. Arriving at the manor, both sisters were solicitous of Gammon when they learnt her son had just been diagnosed with leukaemia. Agency relief would be organised within a few days, but Suze and Sherry would cover care so Gammon could go right away. The police know, thanks to Gammon being on the ball, but we need a strategy, said Sherry as they sat in the lounge, awaiting the police to swing by. Why did Mum take herself off like this? She's run all over the downs before, said Suze. It's not unusual. There must have been a trigger, though, argued Sherry. You had such awful news, Gammon. Do you think Barbara was cross because you were busy talking with your own mum? Not cross, replied Gammon. But Barbara was upset when she heard about Narong. She knows my mum looks after him when I'm here. She finds that a bit sad. The agency made us aware, said Suze, but we thought the situation suited you. Working in Britain helps Thai families, said Gammon. It's been right for us. My mum minds my son there and I am okay here. I send home as much per month as my husband earns in a year. But something sparked Barbara to go, Adam probed. How old is Narong? Four. Barbara overheard he's ill. I told Mum I'd get back as soon as I could. Did it upset Barbara enough to run off? Suggested Adam. Yes, I think so. I'm sorry, Gammon said tearfully. You weren't to know. A mum would be interested in your Thai life, Suze reassured their valued carer. There's more, Gammon said. Did you know about Max? Seeing their blank faces, she continued. Your brother. He died before you were born. The sisters looked at each other, stunned and silenced. Go on, urged Cherry. Your mum said your dad would not have... Sorry, I'll start that again. 
Your mum said your dad would not have wanted Suze if Max had lived, Gammon revealed. I shouldn't be here, gasped Suze. It's only because Max died. Fancy mum sharing this with you, Gammon, and never with us. Sherry was astounded. You must have been very close. Did Barbara say what happened to Max? Adam queried gently. Yes, said Gammon. There she is, Sue shrieked. Sherry braked sharply at the shore and smiled ruefully. Barbara had acquired a child's spade and was digging frantically to find the sun lost long ago to sinking sand. Trauma etched in her memory had surfaced the shock of Narong's blood cancer. Suze went to soothe her mother while Sherry phoned Adam to save police time. Returning home, Gammon had packed and was waiting for a taxi, but Adam now said he would drive her to the airport. Did Barbara say if Max died at a beach near here? Sherry asked Gammon. No, he died in Indonesia, where your parents lived when they first married. But it was on a beach. He was being minded by your mum's sister. Sherry and Suze had always wondered why they had little contact with their mum's relatives, but were quite close to their father's side. Clearly it was time to do some digging and maybe even bring the sisters back together before it was too late. Maybe Gammon's family would come here to help with mum, mused Sue. The manor is roomy and we earn enough to cover costs until they find suitable work. Perhaps they'll tease a few more family skeletons out from the cupboard. I love you, sister, said Sherry. I'm sure I'd have loved Max, but I simply can't imagine life without you. And she linked her arm in Sue's as they joined their mum on the veranda to help her bury the past again. The tale you're about to hear is called The Visit, was written by Rosemary Emmett and is narrated by me, Sue Rodwell-Smith. Do enjoy. It was a glorious day and Josie Blake was having the day off from work from her busy job at an out-of-town superstore. Although she loved it, really there were times when she got quite depressed when hearing sad stories from some of her elderly customers and also quite young ones. Then of course there were the screaming children who mothers seemed profoundly deaf to their cries. The worst ones were those who treated her like dirt and had never heard the word please or thank you. Her favourite customers were friendly, polite and sometimes with a cheeky sense of humour. All in all, just a place to encounter a large cross-section of the public without moving from her seat. This wasn't the career she had planned. She had dreams of being an artist or an actor, but that was before Andrew came on the scene. But today she was glad of this break. She was heading to her favourite spot which was to walk along the beach and then sit on the rocks and just watch the gulls swooping and diving above the waves. There was a brilliant sky reflecting on the water clear and blue. The waves were crashing and splashing on the rocks just below her. Josie loved the sea and rugged coastline. 
She had moved there with Andrew, her husband of two years, and they were both extremely happy. Soon Josie leaned back against the rocks, the warm sun beating down on her face. She closed her eyes and just listened to the gulls and the waves. Suddenly, there was a big splash and she found herself very wet. Oh, sorry about that, said a woman's voice beside her. I didn't mean to startle you. When Josie looked to see where the voice came from, she was startled to see a mermaid-type person with long, flowing blonde hair. Hi, you're Josie Blake, aren't you? Remember me? I'm Maddie Gray. Still in a state of shock, Josie stammered, Uh, yes, you were fatally injured in a car crash five years ago by that drunk driver. Oh, yes, what punishment did he get in the end? Strangely enough, Josie found herself talking quite easily with this creature from the sea. Oh, as usual, a slap on the wrist and a few months in jail, replied Josie. So how come you finished up like you are now looking like a mermaid? Oh, replied Maddie. I was determined I was going to finish up a pile of dust. There were others at the same time as me who felt the same so. With a few words to the right people, we managed to become characters, animal or sea creatures. And as I always loved swimming, I chose to be a mermaid. Josie now remembered Maddie from her student days. She was always a very popular, friendly girl. It was so tragic what happened to her. Josie still could not believe she was sitting discussing the event. Changing the subject, Maddie said, I guess you must be leading quite an exciting life now. I remember you were very keen to be a fashion designer when we last met. I know, said Josie, but it did not work out that way. There were no openings anywhere, so I'm in a local superstore at present. They both laughed. But I quite enjoy it, Josie added. Speaking of which, I'd better get back and buy something for dinner. All of a sudden, there was a gust of wind and the sun disappeared. Josie shivered and felt very strange. Also, there was no sound of Maddie. In a daze, she got to her feet and made her way to the shop and home. When Andrew arrived home and asked if she'd had a good day, he was alarmed at her story. My darling Josie, I think you should see Dr Peach very soon. You seem to have a worrying problem. Okay, but I think my problem is quite normal. It's possible I'm pregnant and it can have a strange effect on some people sometimes. Andrew breathed a big sigh of relief, smiled and gave her a big hug. Wilting Flower was written and is narrated by Julie Stevens and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Wilting Flower she picks the flowers as soon as they start to bloom. I tell her they won't last. We put them in water, they light up the room. For one day, maybe two. The stems then droop, the petals rain down, creating a windowsill flower bed, soon a shriveled mess. I'm a wilting flower, losing petals every moment, hurting as I watch them fall. My stem is drooping, searching for some hidden strength. No water will steady me. My tears nourish no part. Will you pick me up too? The Love That Binds, written and narrated by Evie Coppard.
Sammy had always been around, but I was four before I mentioned him. It was breakfast time and I said, Why doesn't Sammy eat? Dad's fork stopped halfway to his mouth. Mum's face twisted. What did you say? She gripped my arm too tight and stared at me. Who have you been talking to? Nobody, only Sammy, I said and started to cry. Mum hugged me, said she was sorry and gave me a chocolate biscuit, which I'd never had for breakfast before. I gave it my full attention while they whispered over my head. Dad told me Sammy was an imaginary friend. He wasn't real to everyone, just to me, and it was best not to tell anyone about him. Sammy said, you don't like me, that's why. Sammy grew as I grew, in my mirror image. He especially liked being with Mum. He watched her all the time, her hands kneading dough, the tilt of her head as she turned a page, the swing of her hair. At bedtime, his eyes followed her to the door and stared at the space where she had been. It was Kel at school who told me I once had a twin brother. He heard his mum telling his dad, Poor little chap never made it to his first birthday, she said. I pretended I knew, but I was confused. When I told Sammy, he said, You're so thick. I wondered when you'd realise. Yeah, I died. I came back, but I had you. They didn't want to know. Liar, I said. Sammy immediately disappeared, as he always did when I challenged him. Sometimes he was gone for days. I became frantic, lost without him. I learned early on to fall in with his wishes. But when we got older, things changed. Sammy couldn't leave the farm. He didn't mind at first. He liked having mum to himself. But as my horizons broadened, his power over me waned. He hated that. When I invited friends over, he made snide comments only I could hear, or he moved things, played tricks. I was always anxious, wondering what would happen next. When I left the farm, I often came home to his wrath, a push from an unseen hand, a cracked laptop screen, my dog, Datcher, limping from an unattended thorn in his paw. Dad blamed me. He called me careless, clumsy. Mum took me to one side. What's wrong? What's bothering you, Tom? Nothing. I hoped she would persist, ask me, mention his name, tell me she knew. But she never did. When I started going out with Shaz, Sammy demanded I drop her. I said no. You've taken everything, he shouted. All I've got is you. You can't leave me. You're not even real, I shouted back. Get out of my life. Mum heard me yelling. Tom, what's wrong? She looked around the bedroom. Is someone here? Sammy went right up to her and stared into her eyes, breathing hard. For a moment she stared back, but she shook herself and looked away. If I had told her about Sammy then, would she have believed me? Would things have turned out differently? It's a question that tortures me. Gradually, an uneasy peace settled between us. I thought Sammy had finally accepted my relationship with Shaz. I was wrong. One evening, we walked around the farm with Datcher at our heels. It was my job at the end of each day to double-check that outbuildings and gates were properly secured and security lights working. The last check was the slurry shed on the far side of the yard. If you grow up on a farm, you're taught the dangers of slurry storage at an early age. 
I was 12 before Dad even let me inside the shed and showed me the tank, covered with security boards. He said, Never come here alone, son. The fumes under here can disorientate you in seconds. You faint, the Surrey slucks you under, and you drown. It was meant to scare me, and it did. So when I saw the shed door was hanging open, I stopped and turned back to get Dad. Wait, let me check what's happened. I'm in no danger, Sammy said. He walked on. Datcher followed him. Datcher, come, I called. But Sammy was flicking his fingers as if he was carrying a treat, drawing Datcher to him. Quick as a flash, Sammy scooped Datcher up and carried him into the shed, triggering the powerful security light. He stood on the tank platform, where two of the safety boards were open, exposing the treacherous slurry beneath. Instinctively, I dashed forward to grab Datcher and get away. But as I approached, Sammy threw Datcher off the platform. Datcher's yelp was chilling, more like a scream, than he lay silent. The fumes were already making me light-headed and dizzy. I was teetering on the edge of the tank. Sammy was barring my way. The hate in his eyes pierced like a laser. It's my turn now. The farm, mum and dad, everything. Time to swap places. Please, stop. My legs gave way. As I slid down the side of the tank, I gasped for air and flailed my arms, looking for something to grab. The slurry wasn't deep, but it filled my wellingtons, weighing me down. Soon I would faint. I would fall. I was going to die. There was shouting, a scream, a bang, bright light, more shouting and pain. So much pain. Something was pulling my body in two directions, tearing me apart. I fought back. Tom, stay still. Strong hands, human hands, grasped my arms. Everything went black. Tom, can you hear me? I was lying in the yard. Mum's voice hovered above me. Dad was on the phone. Ambulance. I opened my eyes. Mum was all I could manage. I heard Datcher. Saw the light in the shed. Tom, what in the hell were you doing? I shook my head. I didn't know how to begin. Datcher, okay? Mum's silence and a stroke of my hair told me he was gone. It was Sammy, wasn't it, she said. I nodded. I've suspected for a long time that you're not as clumsy and accident-prone as you seem. I felt a presence sometimes, someone watching right beside me. But when I turn to look, nothing's there. Your dad feels it too sometimes. He's angry. He says you didn't want him. Mum held me tight. Is he here now? Sammy stood unmoving, glaring at us. By the barn door. Mum turned her head, speaking into the night air. Sammy, listen to me. One night, we put two baby sons to bed, happy and healthy. When Tom's crying woke us up next morning, you were as cold as stone. I tried everything, but I couldn't wake you. Tears ran down Mum's cheeks. I thought my heart would break. We were thankful we still had Tom. It comforted us, gave us something to keep going for. But Tom never filled the hole you left. We missed you every single day. We went mad with the grief. We thought it was that madness that made us feel you, hear you even sometimes. When Tom said your name, we thought he was picking up on those fantasies. We stopped him talking about you because we didn't dare to believe it was too painful. Sammy came forward, 
crouched right beside Mum and stared into her face. I panicked, tried to pull away. Mum, watch out. I know he's here, Mum said. I can feel you, Sammy. None of this is Tom's fault. You must stop hurting him. I promise, your dad and I will never ignore you again. Never. Sammy looked over at me with a smile of triumph. I recovered well, but my bond with Sammy didn't. I couldn't trust him. His jealousy remained. I left the farm at 16 for agricultural college, then university and a job with the European Commission. Mum and Dad got better at sensing Sammy's presence once they opened their minds to him, but I'm still the only one who sees him. My visits home have been short and few. When I married Fleur in Paris, my parents were not there. I told everyone they had the flu, but the truth is, Sammy can't be left alone for long periods. Abandonment, real or perceived, ignites his rage. Fleur knows nothing about why we visit so rarely, or why I stay awake all night when we do. But tonight, cradling our newborn daughter in my arms, I know I must tell her. She has to understand why, when we take little Marianne to meet her grandparents, we must watch over her every single moment. I have the ultimate gift that Sammy can never have, a family of my own. I know, without a shadow of a doubt, that he will try to take that from me. Edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith, The Love That Binds was brought to you by Wavelength Productions and recorded in Huntingdon, Cambridgeshire. Ice Magic was written by Felicity Radcliffe and is narrated by Kevin Daly. Wearily, she surveyed the photo. No one in the bar matched up, although, based on past experience, she was looking for someone ten years older and two stone heavier than the man in the picture. Nervously, she ruffled her sleek blonde bob, wondering why she had wasted a haircut on this guy and bothered to jazz up her jeans with a sequin top. Suddenly, someone tapped her on the shoulder and she jumped. Hi, Natalie. I'm Ben. Sorry, I've broken online dating rule one by being late. Are you okay? You look shocked. Hi, Ben. I'm okay. Just surprised. You look exactly like your photo. That's rare. With his mid-brown hair and unremarkable features, Ben would never be picked out in a police identity parade. There's no point in faking or filtering, I think. Better to under-promise and over-deliver... Oh, God. Sorry, I didn't mean... No worries, interrupted Natalie, taking pity on him. Let's get a drink. To break the ice, they broke online dating rule two. Don't discuss your exes. Well, you win the drama prize, Ben conceded. I never met someone whose husband left her for a cousin. I must seem boring just drifting apart from my ex. If you can bear to spend more time with someone so dull, let's have dinner next week. I know a nice Vietnamese restaurant. Natalie hesitated. Oh, Okay, she said eventually. On the way home, she chastised herself for agreeing to a second date and worried what Ruth would say. So let's get this straight. Ruth grabbed the wine bottle and refilled their glasses. There was no spark, no chemistry between you and this guy. 
yet you accepted a second date? Why? I suppose I wimped out. Natalie hung her head. He just seemed like a nice person. I didn't want to hurt his feelings. Nat, if you're going to meet Mr. Wright, you haven't got time for nice. Bin him. Move on. I'll give him one more chance. If dinner doesn't work out, I'll say goodbye. Ruth put her head in her hands. The restaurant was intimate, unlike the conversation, which flowed as freely as the sticky rice balanced on their chopsticks. Politely, they discussed their jobs. Ben's stilted account of life as an auditor failed to break down the barriers, so Natalie ploughed gamely on, describing the record company where she worked. Although her procurement role was unglamorous, her anecdotes about dissolute, stroppy musicians usually made people laugh, but tonight they fell flat. Desperately, she changed the subject to hobbies. They had more success there as they both loved outdoor pursuits, particularly skiing. Suddenly, Ben began twisting his napkin nervously, and Natalie sensed that he was working up to something. She was right. Um, a group of us are going skiing. One person's dropped out, and I thought you might like to come. You'd have your own room, and the snow conditions are excellent. Loads of powder. I'm just asking you as a friend. No pressure or anything. Ben tailed off and fiddled with his chopsticks as he waited for an answer. Natalie hesitated, thinking of Ruth's predictable response, then shrugged defiantly. What the hell, she thought. I deserve some fun. Well, if you're promising powder, I'm in, she said eventually. I love powder. I just hate icy conditions. You've got to be joking. Ruth peered censoriously over her glasses at Natalie. You can't even converse, yet you're going skiing? Bag yourself and a ski instructor, that's my advice. They're always fit. The skiing trip was surprisingly successful. Everyone was single except Karen and Isabel, and the group bonded well over numerous apres ski beers. As promised, the snow was superb. Natalie and Karen, both intermediates, skied together every day, whilst Ben tackled the most challenging black runs early on, then spent the afternoons helping Isabel, who was a novice and in ski school every morning. On the last afternoon, Karen and Natalie sat together in a bar overlooking the nursery slopes. Karen had twisted her knee earlier and was planning to miss the next morning's skiing, which the others were fitting in before their flight home. Look at Ben. He's so patient. Izzy says she learns more from him than from her ski instructor. He's so kind and explains everything really well. Karen smiled affectionately as Isabel toppled over once again. You're right, agreed Natalie. It's rare to find an expert skier who is prepared to help a beginner. Fancy another van show? The following morning, Ben sat down opposite Natalie at breakfast. Shredding his croissant anxiously, he asked, As Karen is injured, do you fancy skiing with me? 
There's a quiet area that I discovered last year. It would be perfect for our final morning. Natalie hesitated. Okay, she said eventually. As soon as she got off the lift, she knew. Instead of biting comfortingly into the snow, her skis rattled uncontrollably across the hard, packed, glassy surface. Instantly, her body reverted to beginner mode. Looking down at the slope as it dropped steeply away, she saw translucent, deadly ice everywhere and fought back tears as Ben joined her. Sorry about the ice, he began. The conditions here are different from last year. I can't do this, Natalie quavered. Of course you can. You're just out of your comfort zone, a bit like me sometimes. Natalie stared at him, realization dawning. The secret to skiing on ice is letting go. Don't try and control it. Go with it. Look, let me show you. Natalie took Ben's advice and let go. She fell several times and cursed Ben repeatedly, but over the course of the morning, with his help, she mastered the dreaded ice. Smiling with triumphant relief, she finally glided to a halt beside him. Well, it seems you're actually good at leaving your comfort zone behind, smiled Ben. Better than me, definitely. Fancy teaching me how? This time, Natalie did not hesitate. Yes, she replied. Reunion Written and narrated by Jean Fairburn and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith 75 years my father lived in exile from the hills he loved draped by painters in peacock green hollowed and honeycombed by man and machine where coal seams are stenciled and fill unseen water as black as pontefract slacks which pollute the earth with inky pluck that night the colliers worked with their picks when a bright phosphorus mist, brilliantly lit, dropped a veil, shimmering sequins and pearls, caressing the men and proceeded to curl and snake into tunnels filling air funnels, while over their heads the flood water roared and a deluge of froth boiling like broth tripped up the miners who flopped and dropped, cartwheeling like white-faced circus clowns under the water. They sank and they drowned. Fathers, sons, brothers and lovers all now quietly lie beneath nature's rough covers. Amongst them a grandfather absent in life from a father who promised in death to unite with the son. So I took the ashes to the mine, scattering them there with reverence and pride onto that wasted Scottish hillside. <laughs>